Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Friday, July 22nd, and today we'll start off by talking about what I think was the most interesting merger of the week, and that is Unilever buying kind of upstart dollarshaveclub.com, and then we'll discuss just what the heck is going on at Chipotle. So Chris, let's start off with the Unilever Dollar Shave Club merger. Uh, news broke earlier this week that they're buying, Unilever's buying them for about $1 billion. Uh, Unilever, for those of you who don't know, they're a consumer uh, products goods giant. They're a big rival of Procter & Gamble. Unilever owns brands like Axe, Dove, and uh, Lipton Tees. Procter & Gamble, for those of you who don't know, owns Gillette, the big shaving brand, as well as many, many others. Swiffer, a lot of other things in your house. Uh, but Unilever, as Procter & Gamble's arch rival, they didn't own a men's shaving slash grooming brand. So a lot of people are like, oh, Unilever buying them. This is an obvious shot at Procter & Gamble, kind of intensifying the rivalry. And uh, it's been a really kind of divisive deal, and I'll let you jump in with talking about why it's been a divisive deal. People talk about industries that are is a razor blade model. Uh, <laughs> the razor is, razor blade. Yeah, this, this, this is, is this is that model definitely. <laughs> uh, 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 Gillette, uh, owned by Procter and Gamble, puts an unbelievable amount of money into R and D. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a product that I just don't know why they feel the need to keep improving. But every year or two, they have some kind of improvement on this very expensive product. There was a uh, an Onion article from 2004 that got a lot of rounds. Chris is nodding, said he's seen it, and this was widely circulated. The Onion article was literally the title was "Fudge It." We'll, we'll release a five-blade razor. And it had, like, fake emails back and forth between uh, Gillette's executives that was saying, three blades? Who needs three blades? Let's go to five blades and charge 50% more. And Gillette actually saw this. They didn't see this email. But two years later, that is the strategy they rolled out. They were like, five blades, 50% more. Let's do it. And people pay for it. People pay for it. So uh, it reality reality you know you try to keep up making fun of reality and reality this reality just keeps up uh, beating you but so Gillette I mean Procter & Gamble bought them uh, about 10 years ago now they bought them for big multiple but look this was a the original razor razor blade business it was a phenomenal business it, Warren Buffett had been a long time investor in it it was one of his when he pointed to great businesses the first thing he points to are Coke and C's and then the second thing he pointed to was Gillette uh, he, it was a great business, dominant name brand, all this sort of stuff. Go ahead. I think it was Buffett who said this, but but one of the early commentators on this is that there are very few consumer products where the best product is also the most expensive one. Mm-hmm. It would be as if most people were buying Porsche 911s to drive to work. Yep. Uh, but most people buy the Porsche 911 of razor blades for but, some reason. Exactly. But let's talk about why this deal has been divisive on both sides. So. Uh, a lot of people are pointing to this and saying Unilever overpaid. And yeah. the reason is this is a very rich multiple. They paid five times revenue for dollarshaveclub.com. And that, to begin with, is a very big multiple for a consumer products uh, company. Yeah. And then, you know, Dollar Shave Club, they didn't just pay five times revenue. Dollar Shave Club wasn't profitable. So a lot of people are saying you paid a billion dollars for something that's doing – 200 million in revenue and it's not making any money. That's extremely rare for a consumer products company. Go ahead. And what is it? I mean, it's a cool website. It is turning a product into a service, but they're just a middleman. Yep. And you and I were both talking about this. You know, they're just a middleman. Their blades, uh, I believe they're Dorco Blades is Mm -hmm. the company they buy them from. And you can go to Dorco's website and buy them for cheaper than you can get them from Dollar Shave Club. 
uh, just by kind of cutting the middleman out. So a lot of people were saying it's a very easy copy. You can copy the business model yeah. very easily, and you can get the blades very easily. Yeah, no, you can work exactly. Uh, there aren't really barriers to entry. Other people can make cool websites. Harry's made a cool website, mm-hmm. and you get blades and you send them out to people. It's kind of you need to get scale. You need to get customers, but other people can do this too. Yeah, so Harry's made a website that really copies their model and is kind of a little more on the upscale. Procter & Gamble released a Gillette subscription model last year that people had said this is one of the reasons Dollar Shave Club's growth is slowing. And look, Amazon's around the corner. Uh, the margins on these things are huge. I, I I don't know the exact margins for Gillette anymore because they haven't been a public company since 2005, but Procter & Gamble's operating margins are 22%. Amazon has to look at that and say, look, they're basically a middleman. We're, by, we're, we're acting as middleman for them, but if we cut them out, we can send directly to our uh, subs and cut out some of that margin and still make a huge profit. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and and they have the subscription services too. So even the pricing exactly. model, you know, you could give it some cool name if they want a cool name, but you can uh, have a subscription service and a lower cost too. Yeah, so I think those are all the reasons to be negative on the deal, but I do think the deal is interesting. So look, there's a ton of optionality here. Dollar Shave Club is growing quickly. Mm-hmm. They've been growing quickly even after Gillette entered. Uh, and if you look at them, they have 15 to 20% of the market if you look at just number of blades shipped, kind of 10% of the market if you look at the, va- the value of the blades. Uh, Gillette has more than 50% and 66% of the value. But, you know, Dollar Shave Club, so they're a fifth of Gillette size. Gillette was bought out 10 years ago by Procter & Gamble for $57 billion. Like, if you look at just kind of those metrics, you say, oh, wow, that could be a multi-billion company just on that. Dollar Shave Club has 50% of the online subscription market, which is rapidly taking share. So you look at that, you say they're growing quicker. There's a lot of interesting optionality here, but I see you're skeptical. Well, I would say it's hard to make a price argument for either the product or the business. However, there are ways you could come up with that they could really grow it. You know, yeah. you could say, well, fine, even if somebody could find a dork oak blade, it is a convenience. And men, especially professional young men, mm-hmm. are lazy or have high, you know, other things to do. And and and, uh, and this is a product uh, where they are frequently going out and buying it separately than a family or a couple's yeah. budget because the person who's primarily not doing most of the shopping might have an actual preference in the specific product, want to do it themselves. And so the idea of having the convenience and being willing to be somewhat price insensitive to that, I could imagine, could be real. And I also could say that there's a huge amount of space, especially with American males, to get them to spend on uh, health and grooming products more like American women or more like Italian males. Italian males spend just as much as Italian women do on grooming and uh, products like this. And and I think that's one thing Unilever absolutely has to be thinking. They say, hey, these guys have a million men signed up, and I don't know the exact number, but they've got a million men signed up who are buying their blades directly from them. It's going to be like a cakewalk, just taking those men and saying, hey, you get blades from us. Let us throw in some shaving cream. Let us throw in some face cream. Let us throw in shampoo. Let us throw in all sorts of stuff. We'll deliver it to you. It's on a subscription model. Monthly recurring revenue, huge cross synergies between revenue. We always look skeptically at cross synergies and revenue synergies. But in this case, I think it's real. You know, If you just get 10% of the people to sign up for one additional thing, that creates huge, huge upside. Go ahead. Yeah, and just they're, they're small enough dollar figure things that, you know, geez, yeah. you can you can throw some things in the box that are super profitable. Yeah, and, and the other thing is a lot of people are saying Dollar Shave Club isn't profitable right now. We talked about this a little bit on our Amazon uh, podcast with Amazon Prime. 
but you know that's because of uh, you're you're acquiring a subscriber who's going to have a lifetime value. So if you pay you know fifty dollars up front to get them, and then they've got a four hundred dollar lifetime value to you, you're going to look unprofitable on year one, but you're actually growing and creating a lot of value that way. In this case, Dollar Shave Club, they're doing a lot of advertising right now. They had a Super Bowl ad, which you know I don't know if Super Bowl ads are effective, but if you think about that as growing profitable lifetime values for people, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Go ahead. And they already are starting to really upsell. I mean, they call it the Dollar Shave Club. These customers are not spending a dollar <laughs> a month. In fact, it's not even clear that they're spending less than uh, than uh, other uh, uh, shaving customers uh, yep. and that they upsell between low, medium, and high already. And so I think they're starting to kind of create some flexibility in the customer. There's a really funny thing where uh, somebody was a couple months ago, someone was asking the Dollar Shave Club CEO, you know, when are you going to be profitable? And he said, we could be right now if we dialed back advertising, but we want to grow a lot. Uh, we want to get a lot of subscribers and we're going to kind of expand into new things. And his thing was, we've got the new product. It's going to be huge. It's the butt wipe and it's going to change men's lives. So they're already thinking about new things that they can upsell people on. I don't know if butt wipes are the thing, but uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Look, Warren Buffett called Gillette, Proctor & Gamble combo. He said, this is a dream deal that creates the world's greatest consumer products company. I don't know if this is the dream deal that creates the world's greatest consumer products company, but I think it is showing that Unilever's forward-looking. I think there's a lot of adverti- a lot of synergies there, and a billion dollars to get something with this much access and this much synergies. It's not. It's not a lot for uh, someone like Unilever. No, Go ahead. No, I mean, it's such a huge company that you they could learn and improve and adopt a lot from this upstart. And uh, just it doesn't take that much optionality to justify it. No, if you look at it as your foray into subscription products, I mean, the, the returns could be huge with those mm-hmm. synergies. Anything else here? You want to go to Chipotle? Chipotle. So let's go to Chipotle. Uh, the company has been in the news a lot. Uh, their shares have dropped... 35 to 40 percent since their peak last summer uh you know the big news has been a food poisoning incident that started last year uh it resulted in them reporting their first ever loss as a public company but there are tons of signs that they're struggling uh their cmo is on leave after getting charged with buying cocaine in a new york cocaine delivery ring and it seems uh, sort of related it was yeah, kind of business stress uh, it, it, people did uh the math and tracked it down they're like the first food poisoning incident started day one and by day four he had started the cocaine allegedly i guess i'll throw out uh there's tons of evidence that research is showing consumers are viewing the brand as permanently damaged or right now it's damaged and people think it might be permanent. And the whole industry is dealing with kind of peak restaurant right now is what some people are calling it. Uh, they reported earnings last night and the earnings were a disaster. And, but uh, the stock did something interesting. I'll let you kind of jump in and talk about all that. You know, uh, the market is a discounting mechanism. The stock was actually up 5%. Yeah. So, look, revenue was down 20%. Mm-hmm. Same store sales were down 25%. And earnings per share were completely wiped out. And, you know, same store sales in particular is what you look at when you see a retailer. And 25% is among the worst things you can ever see. I mean, it's an awful disaster of a quarter. But the stock rose 5%, and it shows, you know, people were expecting the absolute worst. And when they just got something that was normal to a little above normal awful, the stock went up 5%. I think sometimes in the capital markets where the direction is the most obvious, even when the direction is unanimous, Mm -hmm. it's when the market can be the most sloppy about magnitude. So if you say, 
eating massive burritos and getting food poisoning. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, well, I don't think there's really two sides to that conversation. It's horrible. It's going to be, it's, they're going to be impacts. But then trying to measure in terms of the magnitude, it kind of, the market over overran the even quite bad news. Do you know one, and this was before we worked together, but one thing we were talking casually and you said, and it's really stuck with me, Monster Energy drinks. A couple of years ago, there were uh, one or two teenagers drank like six of them in an hour and had heart attacks and died and the stock was way off. And you said, look, if it's in the news, it's in the price. And people price Monster Energy Drink like they were growing out of business. But this was actually a company with uh, a great brand that was growing quickly, that had a lot of strategic value. And if you could kind of look further than just those one or two scary New York Times headlines, the stock's been like a triple since those headlines because it's still growing. And you know, people kind of discount a teenager drank six of them and had issues, of course. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So um, they have a new loyalty program, and that yeah. appears to be uh, catching on. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons people are responding well to this earnings report is the company came out and said, look, things have been bad. We acknowledge that, but we continue to see signs that things are getting better. They released a new loyalty program that they say is going really well, and the early sales trends in July are still negative, but they're not 25% negative. Are you uh, a member? I'm a member. I'm a frequent eater at Chipotle, but uh, it's one thing I want to talk about with – you know, Chipotle, when times were great and they were on top of the world, people said, why don't you do a loyalty program? It'll increase your customer loyalty. It'll be great for you. Chipotle said, we don't need to. Our same store sales are great. You know, if we have to give people their 10th burrito for free, that just cuts into our margin. But then when times are bad, they do it. And I'll let you talk about why maybe you should do things in good times. With yeah, no, in, yeah. In, in so many different cases in terms of loyalty programs, in terms of kind of uh, uh, being a little bit humble about things like that, you know, just the time to take a step back is really when uh, when you when you don't need it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings about these because on one hand I love free stuff, on the other hand I hate carrying stuff around. So uh, you know, like I I don't tend to do a good job like keeping track of the cards and so forth. Newer ones that are on um, uh, smartphones is a little easier to keep track of. But, yes. uh, but, but they really do work. They give you a lot of information. You get a lot of data about the customer. Customers and uh, and also they don't always uh, they don't always get to the end and use them. So I mean that's the really the ideal situation. Uh, look, the Starbucks one is a great one, right? There's been stuff that says Starbucks has like a billion dollars in cash floating around that people have loaded on their cards. Mm-hmm. That it's more than a lot of banks have in deposits on hand, and that's just free float. You get tons of info on your customers. You can see exactly what they're ordering, where they're ordering, times they're ordering. Like I think it makes sense on a lot of levels, and it's surprising that Chipotle wouldn't uh, do this here. So. Uh, I think we've talked about the power of low expectations, why you should do stuff in good times that you need to do in bad times. Why don't we talk about investing implications? I think there's a long and a short thesis on the stock here, Chris, and uh, I'll let you take either thesis and kind of talk about it. I was just going to say, on the the long side, we tend to like, at least from, from researching for a potential long, I tend to be very interested in situations where the allegorical and statistical are really different, that the mm-hmm. kind of superficial look at it is something bad's happening. But you look deeper, and especially, we have a huge economy and a lot of huge companies like this, they always have something bad yeah. happening. And uh, just because it can get above the fold in the New York Times for a day or two doesn't mean it impacts what you should be looking at, the long-term uh, value of the company. Yeah, and, and the stock is down from 700 to 400, which whenever something drops that much, I think it's the first thing we're like, oh, they're could be something interesting here. Yeah. A big drop like that could be an overreaction or misreaction. Uh, but in this case, you know, it's still not. Well, let's talk about the long piece a little more. So there's the big drop. Yeah, and then I would just add to that. And and price by itself can never be enough data to make something interesting. But these 
big moves like that, it really can start to draw your attention. And then secondly, you know, on the kind of the news flow on a uh, on a food poisoning, you could imagine a lot of people paying attention to a day-old or week-old food poisoning. But, like, have you ever really heard a conversation yeah. begin about, oh, somebody had food poisoning a month ago or six months ago? So, At some point, it becomes history. So I was doing a lot of research on this and prepping for the podcast. And one thing I saw in 1993, Jack in the Box had a huge E. coli outbreak. Uh, and this was way worse than Chipotle's. They, uh, 732 infections, mainly in kids under 10. Four kids died. Almost 200 kids had permanent kidney and brain damage. Uh, and same, st- same store sales were actually off by 25%. Mm-hmm. Very similar to Chipotle. Uh, that was 1993. 1994, same store sales were up 25 3%. 1995, same store sales were up 3.5% or so. So people had a very quick memory in going back to a much worse outbreak in uh, Jack in the Box. Now, Jack in the Box wasn't as big as Chipotle, so I don't know if it got the same media coverage. kind of wasn't Twitter, so I'm not sure if it was as widely followed. But this was a much worse situation that saw a similar drop, and the, the uh, recovery was very quick. So I think if you're long the stock, you're pointing to that, and then you're pointing, hey, as soon as it turns around, there's tons of room for Chipotle to grow. You know, they have 2,000 restaurants right now. Uh, I don't see why Popeye's has 2.4 thousand. Arby's 3.2,000, Dairy Queen and KFC are 4,500 each. I don't see why Chipotle couldn't get to those numbers. And if you say, oh, you know, the stock could earn 20 or $30 per share with their current store base, they do the turnaround in uh, store sales and they double, you're talking like $100 in earnings per share by early two, early 2020s. The stock's a home run from here. Go ahead. My guess is in 2016 compared to 1993, you're dealing with a time where the kind of media crisis opportunity is bigger in a sense because of Twitter, because of mm-hmm. um, because of smartphone um, uh, cameras, because you can see Google search terms and so forth. But they come and go really fast. Yeah. They'll be onto something else before too long, I think. I, I mean, that's one thing a lot of people have said. You know, the fires burn brighter but burn out quicker nowadays. I think it's certainly true in public relations. And it'll be interesting if it's true in Chipotle, you know. You talk about all that math. I was doing some some work earlier. If my math there is kind of right, you're looking at 800 to 1,000 per share in the early 2020s. Today's stock price is 440. That's an incredible IRR if you make that investment. So uh, that's the upside. Yeah. But the downside is, you know, a lot has to go right. You need same store sales to return. You need them to grow to a lot of restaurants. And if they don't, you know, the stock's trading at like 50x forward earnings, 35x next year's earnings. Even after uh, this recent stock drop, that's still a really big premium to other kind of pie growth chains like Potbelly and Panera. So there's that issue. The other issue, Chipotle, there's a lot of competitions that popped up. Dos Toros, Trace Carnes, Moe's, Cadoba are all kind of stealing little pieces of the Chipotle model. So there's competition. It's the capitalist system at work. The people are coming in and copying a successful brand. You want to have the last word? No, I, I would say, you know, I owned the uh, AB share class spread when there was, when before they collapsed, but after they collapsed, I've been out of it since. I've been kind of watching with interest from the sideline, but haven't quite, it's gone from expensive to less expensive, but hasn't, uh, has, hasn't gotten cheap, cheap, cheap. Held a gun to my head. I think I'd prefer to own it than be short it here, but as of now, I'm, uh, I'm neither. So just, uh, we'll, we'll kind of, uh, prelude monday's podcast a b share class sometimes companies will have one share class that most investors have that have less votes than another share class that normally insiders and executives have in this case uh chipotle had two they collapsed them there was a little bit of spread but we will be talking on monday about 
good corporate governance policies. Uh, do you want to have a last word, or do you want to no, leave, I, I, leave I, listeners I with that tease? Especially for situations where I'm a small minority, uh, my votes aren't worth that much to me. I will I will sell them shamelessly. I guess my uh, corporate votes, my political votes, is it even legal to sell them? I don't know. If it's not, political I will not votes? offer to sell them on this podcast. But if it is, I'd be open to it. Uh, that is a non-binding <laughs> joke offer just for any regulators listening. But uh, that's all the time we have. We've teased Monday's Corporate Governance Podcast, so we'll talk to you about that then. Before we hit our disclosures, a reminder, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. We, did you get any uh, Netflix recommendations you liked last oh, time? Oh, I saw, got some good recommendations. I haven't used them yet, so I yeah. can't respond in uh, detail, but the listeners were kind enough to give me some suggestions for things to listen to on Netflix. Marco Peaky, Polo was one that's Peaky on my list. Peaky Blinders got hit a lot, and yes. that's one I've been meaning to watch, so maybe that's Peaky Blinders. As well. yeah. Okay, disclosures. We're running long. I don't have any disclosures. you have anything you're long? Okay, no disclosures for either of us. We'll talk to you guys on Monday.